Well, we've been teaching on eschatology, and uh, last week we kind of concluded with the inclusion of the church and then its conclusion, and we certainly understand that the, the church will conclude with a rapture. Uh, and that is what we're going to discuss this morning and probably a little bit next week. Uh, but we want to look at uh, the rapture and what a rapture is, and uh, that's certainly part of eschatology. We could honestly teach five or six weeks on the rapture by itself because there's just so much to it. When I was in Bible school, I wrote a paper on the rapture, and I thought, could I really fill that many pages with information on the rapture? And undoubtedly, yes. The more I got into it, the more I realized there's a lot to be said about the rapture. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, the rapture is probably the biggest eschatological event that will affect the church. I can't think of anything any bigger. The event that's going to take the church out of the scene is the biggest one. That's the rapture. It concludes the church age. So let's look at this. The rapture is the catching away of the saints of God by the Lord Jesus to be with him in the air. And so that is by definition the rapture. He's going to catch us away. We have two verses, two passages to read. We'll look at those real quick. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be, uh, ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ, excuse me, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So those are your two most critical passages in the New Testament epistles concerning the rapture. Now, uh, as we've pointed out, but we'll remind you that the word rapture is nowhere in the Bible. We get the word rapture from the Latin Vulgate Bible, and uh, the, the, the Greek word is harpezo, which means to be caught up. When you translate that into Latin, it's raptir or raptus, and that's where we even get our English word enraptured. When two lovebirds are in love, they say they're enraptured. They're just enraptured. They're enamored with each other. That just means they're caught up with each other. But it's a verb, and it has a, a direct action. It's to be caught up, to be taken away, to, uh, to be transported. And so, though the word rapture is not in the Bible, we understand the concept is very much in the Bible. In fact, many, many, many times is the term rap or the, the expression or the event of a rapture in the Bible. We, we need to uh, talk about this because it's the thing we're looking for. And some folks have said there, there aren't many prophecies or any, any left for Jesus to come back. I think there might be a few. Dr. Barclay, my pastor, believes there might be a few prophecies left to be fulfilled. But we understand it could happen at any moment. And as we know how God operates, it could take three days and everything that needs to happen fall into place and we're gone. And the wonderful thing is the Bible doesn't tell us when it happens, because if we did know uh, when it was going to happen, we'd live like the devil up until the day before. And then we try to get everything right and go. And uh, because we don't know, we have to live by faith every day. Because one of the things we're going to look at in this lesson is uh, my personal doctrine, and I believe the Bible teaches it, though some might disagree. I don't believe every Christian is going to go in the rapture. And uh, we, could, we could study a lot into that, and maybe that will be more of our second lesson on this. That ought to put a little bit of healthy fear in you. Because if you think you can just be born again and live like the devil and never obey the voice of God for 15 or 20 years, what makes you think you're going to hear that final commandment given to the church, which is come up hither, come up here. So we want to look at these things and uh, 
put some, some reverence in us. The word caught up together, it's the Greek word harpezo, to catch, to snatch, to lead something away. The word rapture is not used anywhere in the Bible. Uh, our word rapture comes from the Latin Vulgate Bible, which translates caught up together as raptus. This is why we call the catching away the rapture. Now we want to discuss briefly what raptures are, and there's actually multiple rapture events in the Bible. Uh, raptures are biblical occurrences, and you need to know that. So when the church is raptured, it won't be the first time it's ever happened. When the church is raptured, it will not be the first time this kind of event has happened. God has a track record of doing this kind of thing. And this is what we want to look at. We'll probably begin to build a case here on why not every Christian is going to go in the rapture. Uh, that ought to motivate us to pray more. It ought to motivate us to live clean. Really, it ought to motivate us to do the work of our Father uh, while we're here. Uh, so let's look at some stuff because some of you are looking at me like, no, I've been taught everybody's going in the rapture. Really? We'll look at some things here. Raptures are biblical occurrences. Uh, it is a way in which God has chosen to remove some of his servants in times past. There are five certain, I define them as certain rapture events spoken of in the Bible, and three conjectured rapture events. Some raptures have already passed, and some are yet in the future. Now, it has commonly been taught that there are seven raptures in the Bible, and I've even taught that, even have even mentioned it in the last several weeks of teaching this, but as I dig into it, I have to just be honest and say, in fact, I was even talking to an eschatological expert this week. We were talking about stuff. I said, we're going to have to get together, but wait till I finish my study, because then I'm going to bring you a bunch of questions, and you can prove me, or I'm going to prove you, or I'll answer your questions. He said, sure. And I said, how come these two are always considered raptured events, but uh, I don't see the term rapture or catching away or caught up or come up hither. I said, do we just assume they're raptured because of the way we find them in the Bible? He said, yes, it's an assumption. I said, all right, then that's, that'll help me be more accurate in how I write this lesson. So there are five specific, certain, we know certain rapture events spoken of in the Bible. The first one, these five certain biblical raptures, the first one is Enoch. And you can find that in the book of Genesis chapter 5. He's the first man to be raptured, and the Bible says, quote, for God took him. So there I've got a certain rapture. God took him. And the Bible says, and he was not. And they couldn't find him, though they went and looked for him. He walked with God. That was his testimony, for he had this testimony that he walked with God. So I want you to see two things there. Before you get taken... If it was to follow Enoch's walk, you got to walk with God. People looked for him, but they could not find him, for God had taken Enoch. So that's our first rapture we find in the Bible. I would also throw this out there. In understanding eschatological events, though he technically did not die, as we understand, you know, gunshot or car accident or cancer, or, did his body go to heaven? Can flesh and blood inherit the kingdom? Can sinful nature go into heaven? No. So his body's toast. All right? Just to, say, just to throw that out there. His body, in a sense, is dead. He's in heaven, but his body's not in heaven. All right? This is important because as we start to look at other stuff in the coming weeks, one of the, one of the famous eschatological verses that helps prove some stuff or disprove some stuff is Hebrews 9.27 that says, It is appointed unto man once to die. All right, if that's set in stone, what about those that are raised from the dead? How many times are they going to die? At least twice. What about Pastor Okoko's son Ephraim, who he raised from the dead four times? He died five times. 
because he didn't raise him from the dead the fifth time. So that's the fifth death he died. You have to be careful with Hebrews 9.27 because it doesn't imply what we think it implies. Even with Elijah, who is our second rapture, did his body go to heaven? Is there a sinful body in heaven? So his body did not go to heaven. In a sense, his body died. This is critical just to present that to you. It's one of the things we look at with raptures. How about this? It's appointed unto man once to die. If we see the rapture, are we going to die? No. So you have to be very careful with Hebrews 9.27 and what doctrine you try to build out of it. Now, we use it to teach there's no reincarnation. I mean, once you're gone, you're gone. But even when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, it says, and her spirit returned to her. Where had it gone? To paradise. But it had come back. What about doctors who raised people from the dead several times on the operating table? We lost them three times, but we got them back. So what you're saying is the Bible isn't true in their life. It was appointed unto them to die four times. So we have to be careful with Hebrews 9.27. It is the one that's used to prove that Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses in the Revelation because neither one of them died. Because it's only appointed unto man once to die, so they got to come back and die again. And so I disagree with that. That's more discussion we'll get into. But while we're talking about raptures, we just want to throw that out there. Our second rapture is Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. The second man to be raptured. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So there we have terminology. We have phraseology that lets us know for sure he was raptured. Did Elijah walk with God? Is that a yes? All right. So the second person to be raptured walked with God. People looked for him, but they could not find him, for God had taken him. So we're starting to see a pattern. That's what we want to look to. That's how you build doctrine, is you look for patterns, and you look for uh, set ways that God does things. We know that he, uh, he finished it. Well, he didn't finish his course. He, he, he anointed and ordained his replacement, and then he went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And even though he had, in a sense, disqualified himself through attitude, through wanting to quit, he still was anointed to the time of his departure. Because even before he died, he smote the waters and he and Elisha walked over on dry ground. So he was still anointed. Even before, the day before that, he was calling fire down from heaven, killing people. So he was still anointed, though God said, all right, you're done. Find your replacement. He walked with God until the very end, heard from God until the very end, obeyed God until the very end, and God took him in a whirlwind. And the chariot parted them asunder and he went up into heaven, not in a chariot of fire, which is often misquoted, but he actually, the Bible says, a whirlwind. A tornado took him up, which I have a question because nobody went to heaven before Jesus. So did he really go to heaven or what was the deal? Did he go up into heaven to the heavenlies and then go to paradise? Just just to throw that out there. Nobody could go to heaven before Jesus was raised from the dead. So there's more doctrinal stuff to dig out there. The third rapture we see in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Acts 1, 9 through 11 that he's the third man to be raptured. And the Bible says he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Uh, guess what? He walked with God. Is that right? Jesus Christ, the son of God, walked with God. So now we have three examples out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. We begin to establish doctrine. Enoch walked with God and God raptured him. Elijah walked with God and God raptured him. Jesus Christ was God and he walked with God and God raptured him. But we have three verses that tell us specifically they were taken up out of the sight. They were taken up out of the earth. That brings us to the fourth biblical rapture event, which is the church's rapture. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. We could also add 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 53, though 1 Thessalonians is the one that says caught up together. The church is the fourth man because we're the body. We're the fourth man to be raptured, uh, the Lord's body. Uh, there's, there's some disparaging or disagreements that the church is the bride, which I think is creepy because how can Jesus marry his own body? And what does that say about all those that believed on Jesus before he came? So we'll actually see in the revelation that the bride is actually the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says very clearly. And it's not really a city. He's not, we're not, Jesus is not going to marry a city. It's an anthropomorphic terminology. It's the body of believers that have believed on him. And so it would, be, it would be rude for Jesus, number one, to marry his body, which is the church. Old Testament saints were never called his body. They were called believers or, or, or Israel. But what you see is a joining together of all the believers before the cross and after the cross. That becomes the bride. The Bible calls the church the Lord's body. Paul said, for we are his body and he is the head. So Jesus is not going to marry his body. That's kind of weird. But we, we fill multiple roles. We become the body of believers, the heavenly Jerusalem that's ordained with gems. In the Bible, gems, stones always represent people. Aaron's breastplate had 12 stones. It represented each of the 12 tribes. Um, that's more stuff that we will discuss later as we get to it. So the church is the fourth man to be raptured. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So that's, that's, a, that's a phraseology, caught up together with him to be with him in the clouds. That's what the angels prophesied or said in Acts 1. You men and women, why sit you here and marvel? For in like manner shall the Son of God come again. What's the like manner? In a cloud with angels. How did he go? In a cloud with angels. How is he going to come again? In a cloud with angels. So now if the first three raptures you had to walk with God to go, does it not make sense that in the fourth rapture you got to walk with God to go? I think that makes pretty good sense. I mean, if you connect three dots, you have a pretty straight line as to where things are going. Look at the fifth rapture the Bible clearly speaks of, the two witnesses in the Revelation, who I believe to be Moses and Elijah. <clears throat> Revelation 11, 12. This is the fifth rapture event. These are the two sons of oil that stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. That's what Revelation calls them. Zechariah 4 calls them the two sons of oil. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. So we have definite terminology saying they're, they're raptured. And uh, being the two witnesses working signs and wonders and fire going out of their mouth, and if anybody tries to kill them, they must in that manner die themselves. I, I'm, I'm guessing they walked with God too, or they will walk with God. So now the five, or let's say four of the biblical raptures, the people that are being taken had to walk with God. The fourth one, which is the one we're looking at as a church, we have to walk with God. I believe it's going to be proven. We've taught lots of lessons on it before. And that ought to really encourage us to make sure we keep our family clean, that we're praying for our children, that grandma's doing all right, that we're not letting sin in our life. Because here's the thing about sin, and one of the great tools of eschatology, the great accomplishments, is to put a holy anticipation in you for the coming of the Lord. And if you see these things, that not everybody's going to the rapture, not everybody has called on Jesus. It'll cause you to want to preach to them and pray for them even more. It's almost a false sense of security. Hey, you get born again. You call on the name of Jesus and you can just live any way you want to and make it. Well, that doesn't quite seem uh, like it lines up with the rest of the word. 
One of the best uh, typologies that you find is in Exodus chapter 19, where uh, Moses delivers and redeems and baptizes Israel to himself and to the cloud and to the stone uh, and to the Red Sea, which is all typology of salvation and the new birth and being delivered from Pharaoh, the king of the world, or Lucifer. And he proves them with the word on a daily basis. He gives them manna, gives them directions. Six days, collect this much, or five days. On the sixth day, collect double because you have the Sabbath day. And the Bible says they would not do the word. They would not obey God in the manna. They would not obey God in the manna. They would not obey God in the word, in the commandment, in the tent when nobody was looking. And God said, I'm doing this to prove them, to see if they'll walk with me or no. So when they finally get to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses, on the third day, you will come up. And you'll hear the sound of a trumpet and you'll see a great cloud and you will bring all the people to be up here with me. And on the third day, sure enough, there was a cloud, there was thunder, there was lightning and there was a trumpet and the voice of a trumpet saying, come up hither. And you know what? The people didn't because they've been playing games with God ever since they were redeemed out of Israel. They did not want to obey God. They wanted to do what they wanted to do as it seemed convenient to them. And they played games with the manna, which is Jesus. He's the bread that comes down from heaven. And they wanted to do with Jesus as they saw fit and not what God commanded them. And one of the things it shows you is that because they couldn't obey the daily command, do the manna this way, don't do the manna that way, prepare it this way, don't prepare it that way, stay, save up, don't save up, because they did not have a personal walk with God on a daily basis with the daily commands, then when the ultimate commandment and the voice of a trumpet on top of a mountain, which we could say is Mount Zion, Hebrews 12 tells, tells us that it is, when the ultimate commandment came that said, come up hither, they had no developmental skills in obeying the voice of God. And they didn't. In fact, the Bible says the voice was just a noise to them. And the fact the Bible says they heard the voice and they retreated and they would not draw near to the mountain. And then they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We're not interested. Uh, we're scared. And I wonder, and well, I don't wonder. My personal conviction is, and we have to use that when we're talking about end time events because they're yet to unfold. My personal conviction is, is that it is a symbol of what the church will be like. You'll have all those Christians that played games with the Bible, played games with church, played games with serving God for 15 and 20 and 30 and 50 years. And should the rapture come, they will have never developed the faith to obey Jesus Christ. Did you realize it takes faith to obey God? It takes faith to be a tither. It takes faith to be a prayer warrior. It takes faith to come to church. It takes faith to walk away from sin. When the Lord says, stop hanging out with that person, it takes faith to obey that. When the Lord says, go on a mission trip, it takes faith to obey that. And it's going to take faith to obey, come up hither, come up higher. John the Revelator heard that expression twice in the Revelation, and he obeyed it. And I believe, and most theologians and eschatologists believe, that will be the sound of the voice when Jesus calls his church up. Come up hither. But when he's saying, come hither to church and you don't, and when he says, give hither the tithe and you don't, and when he says, uh, hold fat, back the fornication and quit sleeping around like a slut and you don't, do you really gonna, are you really going to want to obey Jesus when he says, come up? I, my firm, firm, firm conviction, so much that I'm preaching it, I believe walking with God takes practice and it takes a developed faith. 
And if you're playing games with manna today, and if you're playing games with the word of God today, and you're just mamby-pamby in it with Jesus Christ today, when that trumpet sounds, which it could be today or tomorrow or next week, you're not going to obey it. You can't even obey the little word, much less the voice that will shake the heavens and the earth. And so that's the scary thing. I used to be a very firm believer that everybody was going in the rapture, but the longer I've studied this thing out, I, I'm less and less convinced that everybody's going. I, I'm just less and less. In fact, so many of the other verses in, in the epistles talk about he's coming and will appear to those who look for him. If you're sleeping around, snorting coke, embezzling money, you're not looking for him. You're looking for your next fix. You're deceived. You're blind. You're, you're ignorant. Furthermore, the Bible says he will present to himself a church not having spot nor blemish. The Bible teaches us that the spots and blemishes are people. Not sins, but people. We're all going to go to heaven with sin in our life. So there's no such thing as a perfection. But, but the Bible says in 2 Peter and in Jude, talking about wicked Christians, spots they are and blemishes. When they feast among you without any shame, we're dealing with Christians that can come to church and not be convicted of their own sin. And they feast with us in the presence of God. And they feast with us in our fellowships. And the Bible says they're spots and they're blemishes. And Ephesians says it, but Jesus will present to himself a church free from them. That's a little scary. Now you can disagree with it if you want to. Maybe that makes you feel better. I like a higher standard though. I'm not looking to see how far I can backslide and still squeak into heaven. That's kind of um, a poverty faith. As we know from the Bible, we're called to take more land, not, not be like Dan and, and uh, the other tribe and said, can we just hang out on this side of the river? We just, <laughs> we don't want to push any further. It's hard work. This is the scary thing about raptures because it's going to affect our loved ones. Well, that might put a little bit more responsibility on us to pray for them. All right, so pastor, what's the line? What's the cutoff? I don't have a clue. I think that's the point. How much obedience or how much of a walk do you have to have to obey it? I think if we knew that, we'd, let, we'd walk the line. I think if we knew what the cutoff was to be a disobedient, what, what the New Testament calls a cursed child or a faithless child or children of disobedience or a child set apart for destruction, if we knew that line, a lot of Christians would just walk right along it. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. Which is how a lot of Christians live right now anyway. It's a slippery slope. And I'm a once saved, always saved kind of guy, but I'm definitely not a everybody going in the rapture kind of guy. I believe in a sin and to death that you can lose your salvation if you want to. And it takes a lot of work of sin, rebellion, hating God and cursing him in your heart. But the more I look at this, I, my faith is developing now that I almost think for some Christians, it would be better if they died now. In fact, I believe that's what 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says. Uh, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I believe that's an insurance policy. The wages of sin is death. I believe God would rather have some Christians just die now if they're not going to repent. That way... We can, we can apply Philippians that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. At least you die in Christ. But there seems to be something. There's a cutoff, just like there was with the day of Lot. They walked out and the day they left, judgment came. And some that were destroyed were of the household of Lot. 
And if you'll remember, even the angel asked Lot, do you have any more children? Get them out. Do you have any more family, any sons? And Lot only escaped with two. So some of the household of faith didn't make it because they chose to stay. These are scary typologies. You don't have to agree with any of this. This is eschatology. This is the one thing we can all openly disagree about because it hasn't happened yet. Disagree if you want. Say, I don't know. It doesn't bother me a bit. I read all these books. I don't agree with all of it. I agree with a lot of it. Even Tim LaHaye, whose book I'm still studying, he just said in one chapter, he said, now, I kindly disagree with all of my mentors and my fathers and all those that have uh, studiously studied out their doctrine, but I think if they would humbly consider my doctrine, they would find that it answers more questions than it causes. Just talking about... uh, uh, a subject in the revelation. So look, the, revel- the rapture hasn't happened yet. So this is still all open for debate if you want to. But I kind of tend to think God's going to take the stricter standard. And it just makes sense to me that if it takes faith to obey every command, then the command to come up is going to be a command. And it'll take faith. You'll have to want it. Lord, I want to be with you. What about those Christians that don't want to be with him? They don't want to go to church. They don't want to worship. They don't want to pray. Can they possibly obey the command? If four out of the five proven raptures require that you walk with God, does it not make sense that even the fifth one, us, would require we walk with God? Just something to consider. Study it out. Prove me wrong if you want. I don't care. Three conjectured raptures. I call them conjectured because I don't have a passage, and I'm a stickler for the word. I don't have a passage or a phrase that says, and the Lord brought them up, or the Lord caught them up, or the Lord took them, or the Lord snatched them away, or they were raptured. I don't have that, but we conjecture that they are because of what occurs in the Bible. Uh, The sixth one would be the mid-tribulation saints. You find that in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. No verse specifically says they are raptured, but we find them in heaven before the end of the tribulation. How did they get there? Not all tribulation age saints will be martyred. So the Bible says there in Revelation 7, before the end of the tribulation, which is the 70th year, uh, Daniel's 70th week, the seven years of tribulation, that, that John and the elders saw a number that no man could number, worshiping the Lamb. And the elder said, who are these? And John said, sir, you know. And the elder said, these are the saints that have come through the tribulation. Well, the tribulation wasn't over with yet based on the chronology of the revelation. And so we assume, and all eschatologists, that's the best they can do, that they have all been raptured. There will be many that will be martyred, but not every saint in the rapture, uh, in the tribulation will be martyred. But here's all those the believers that came through the tribulation. They prevailed and they overcame. So we conjecture that they were raptured. That's why I call them a conjectured rapture. How did they get there? We have to assume they were raptured, though we don't have a verse that specifically says it. Not all tribulation age saints will be martyred. They will walk with God at the risk of death. So there's another potential rapture that required you to walk with God. The seventh one is the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, Revelation 14.1. No specific verse given for rapture, but they are found in heaven worshiping God before the end of the tribulation. How did they get there? There is no record of the 144,000 being martyred. 
Maybe some will, maybe some won't. But the revelation doesn't reveal that they die martyrs' deaths. So how do they get in heaven before the end of the tribulation? Because we know at the end of the tribulation, that's when the millennial kingdom starts. But they don't walk into the millennial kingdom. They're in heaven. How'd they get there? Eschatologists, theologians, conject, or they conjecture that they were raptured. And did you know that they will walk with God and proclaim his gospel? <laughs> so now we have six out of the seven raptures you have to walk with God. The eighth one, this is kind of a neat one. This is a relatively new one to me. I just, I, I found it in two, two sources. And then I talked to this expert this week about it, asked him what he thought. Uh, resurrected saints at Christ's resurrection. Matthew says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, the tombs came open and they went and testified of Jesus. All right. So where are they? Because they've already died once. They'd have glorified bodies. They're not here right now. What most folks who even bother to look at that verse any closely, they think those guys went up with Jesus in Acts 1. Because the Bible says there was a cloud. And Hebrews 12 says we have a cloud of witnesses. And these guys were raised from the dead at the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. And they went around Jerusalem and witnessed of him, testified of him. And so most folks, I don't say most, several folks, and I like it, it feels good to me, they believe that that's another rapture, that those guys, maybe they had a glorified body, I don't, I don't know. The Bible says the tombs came open and they walked around, maybe it was a resurrected body or maybe it was a glorified body, but they're not here today. And there's no mention of them after Matthew, so we just maybe assume they're part of that cloud that received the Lord in the air with the angels, and they went with them. Again, the best we can call it is a conjectured rapture because there's nothing that says, and the guys that were raised with Jesus, they went with them. There's nothing that says that. There's just kind of some dot, dot, dot at the end of uh, the thing. So we just have to conjecture it. Uh, this would be a cloud of witnesses as spoken of in Hebrews 12.1. So let's look real quick at what the church's rapture will be like because every rapture is a little different. That's kind of another neat thing. Uh, every rapture is different. Enoch's rapture was a different. Enoch, God just took him. Elijah, he went in a whirlwind. Jesus was in a cloud with angels in front of a bunch of people. And the church's rapture is going to be different. The Bible gives us several details of what the rapture will be like, and we should be familiar with it. Number one, you need to know the rapture is going to be a very, very noisy event. The rapture will be a noisy event. Jesus Christ himself shall descend with a shout Anybody reckon Jesus can yell? I think it's going to be pretty loud. It's not going to be, you know, some kind of little squeaky thing. The archangel will give a voice. I reckon that might be kind of loud too. And God the Father will blow a trumpet. So you've got two, you've got a trumpet, uh, the last trumpet, and two, an angel, and the, and the Lord Jesus yelling. I think it's going to be pretty loud. That also types back to Exodus 19 and on the mountain it was so loud it shook the earth and yet God's people didn't want to go up ultimately only a handful did that's not a good sign number two it's going to be quick the rapture will be an instantaneous event. Corinthians says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The word moment is the Greek word atomos, where we get the word atom. The implication of atomos is that which can no longer be divided anymore. And that's why we call the atom 
the atom. It could not be divided, but of course now science is dividing it even more and even more and even more and even more. But we understand in an atom of time is how I like to translate it. We'll be changed in an atom of time. You can't, you know, you take a second and you divide it a trillion times. That's how fast this thing's going to happen. An instant of time so quick, it literally cannot be divided into any quicker measurement of time. Thank God it's not going to be a lollygagging kind of thing. You know, I've seen a lot of paintings and Christian artists try to show pictures of the rapture and they, you know, show the graves burst open in the streak of light. Technically, it'll be faster than that. You, you won't even see it. If it's that quick, how can you see it? And so, just kind of a neat thing. Transforming, another word to describe the rapture. It will be a transforming experience. We might add this. If you don't want to be transformed right now, you don't want the rapture. If you're happy with who you are right now, you go ahead and just check, do not bother me on rapture day. Because I'm happy living the life I'm living now. I'm happy outside of church. I'm happy not worshiping. I'm happy not praising. I'm happy living like a heathen pig. I'm happy doing drugs. Don't bother to bother me, Jesus. Don't text me. Don't Facebook me. Don't Skype me. Don't tweet me. You just leave me alone. Let me roll over and I'll never know what happened. And really, that's what I want. Because that's really what's happening right now in the church anyway. The preachers are preaching, get ready, get clean, get ready, get clean. And the church is saying, leave us alone. This thing's going to be transforming. And I might even throw out there, if you're not being transformed daily now, don't worry about being transformed on that day. The number one thing it's going to take out of your life is sin. The number one thing rapture is going to take out of your life is all sin. And if you don't want sin out of your life, you don't want the rapture. Now, I'm not saying you're perfect now, but I think all of us, when we sin, we're put out with ourselves. Lord, I enjoyed it for a second, but why do I do that? See, you qualify. Lord, I I didn't want to look at it, but I did. It was okay, but I'm really... Lord, I didn't want to say it, but I did. Lord, I didn't want to act that way, but I did. You're not embracing sin. It just gets on you from time to time. If you hate sin, then the rapture's for you because it's going to wipe it all out because that sinful flesh will be changed into an incorruptible thing. So the rapture will change our flesh and blood and sin-riddled bodies into glorified, incorruptible, immortal bodies because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The dead in Christ rise first and get their new bodies first. Then we which are alive and remain, and the Greek word remain there in that passage refers to you're still abiding faithful to Jesus. It doesn't mean alive and alive. The Bible says, we which are alive and remain. Remain what? Remain faithful. There'll be a lot of folks who are alive in that day, but the Greek's not saying alive and alive. It's saying alive and remain. Remain what? Remain with Jesus. We which are alive and remain, we go next. So I like that. Exclusive. The rapture is also exclusive. The rapture will be a very exclusive event. Only born-again Christians will hear the trumpet and only faithful, prepared Christians will obey the call. You can look at Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Hebrews 9, 28. Dr. Hilton Sutton wrote, and I like this quote. He said, if you grace the house of God with your presence only on Sunday morning and never again until next Sunday morning, you cannot convince me you're ready for the catching away of the saints. That's a little stricter than I'd even put it. You only come to church once a week. Dr. Sutton, who was a foremost authority on this, among many others, he said, you can't convince me you're ready for the rapture. You only come to church once a week. Nowadays, we don't even have that out of a lot of saints. They just, they don't go to church at all. They might have a good heart, but it's a backslidden one. 
So like I said, I don't have the definitive defining line. I'm just saying this stuff's out there to be considered. You know, it's possible folks will come to church five times a week and not go because they're not born again or their heart's not here or the church they go to is a dead church and they don't even know truth. They're, they're barely, they don't even know anything. Maybe, what if it's some kind of pervert preacher? Pervert preachers go to church seven times a week. That doesn't mean they're going to go. So elevating, I like that. The rapture will be elevating. Jesus will not actually touch down on planet earth, but will actually stop in the clouds and receive us to himself. So he doesn't, in the rapture, Jesus doesn't actually come to the earth. That's not till the second coming. And honestly, we don't want Jesus to touch the earth yet because when he does, it's done with. <laughs> He's going to kill a lot of people with the sword of his mouth. He's going to destroy so many people. There'll be billions of gallons of blood in the valley there in Israel. We don't want him touching down yet. He's not going to. The Bible says he will come in the clouds and receive us up to himself. So it's an elevating experience. That's why in church we try to get used to, you used to coming up. We want you to come up in your behavior. We want you to come up in your dress. We want you to come up in your class, your excellence. Come up in clean standards. And that's one of the other things about the hireling church is that they're lowering things. When folks are going to church now, they're actually loosening up. When they're going to church now, they're getting uh, more carnal. Many Christians are actually learning how to be carnal at church now. I've been to churches that actually taught me carnality. I've been to about two or three churches that going there taught me carnality I would have never known. And it's a shame. But church should not be a place that teaches you carnality. Church should be a place that teaches you to come up. And that's why I'm going to keep wearing a suit. Not that it makes me. People make the suit but it's the nicest thing our society has to show for excellence. Amen. Uh, we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I'm, I'm betting you're not going to get to go on those tight skinny jeans and that halter top and those gauges. I bet those are getting left down here. So why have them in the pulpit right now? It is widely believed that the world will not hear or see anything at this event. And I, I kind of believe that. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say one way or another. If it's a spiritual sound, I don't think the world will see anything. I think, I think they'll just say we're all gone. When will it occur? Jesus said no man knows, knows the day nor the hour, only the Father. Not even Jesus knows when he will be sent back for us. If he did, he would tell the Holy Spirit who would then reveal it to us. But nobody knows. So don't buy any books that say, you know, 2012 reasons why it's going to happen in 2012 or 2020 reasons why it's going to be happening in 2020. Jesus did give us a clue as to when, and so does the book of James. Matthew 24, 14, this is Jesus. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. That's our job. We occupy till he comes. We're preaching, preaching, preaching. Once the whole earth has been evangelized, the end will come. Now, there's some debate as to whether that's the second coming or the rapture. And let me throw this out there and contradict my own little curriculum here. If the whole world has been evangelized when the church goes in the rapture, what job do the 144,000 witnesses have? Or the two witnesses? There's, there's nothing left for them to do. So I'm starting to see, and other teachers have taught this, that we may not finish the job of evangelizing the whole world. If we did, there'd be no reason to have 144,000 Apostle Pauls wearing the planet out for seven years, actually three and a half years. So it's possible we won't finish the job, but that doesn't mean we, we quit. 
We keep doing it. We go into all the world and preach the gospel. We do because the Lord never told us to stop. And the, the, the next dispensation kicks in and they just pick up right where we left off. So that's what we do. We keep going. We keep preaching. This is getting very close, the total evangelization of the world. There are about 6,700 languages in the world. The Bible has been translated into about 2,500 languages. So that's about a third done. 6,700 languages and Bibles and only a third of those. So we've got more preaching and more translating to do. You want to know a good place to put some mission money? Put it in the Bible translators. If you want to know where to go, just go to Wycliffe. They've been translating Bibles for 150 years, and they do a good job of it. Even if you don't agree with all their doctrine, hey, let them get a Bible into somebody else's hand. Let them develop their own doctrine. James 5, 7 says this, Be patient, therefore, this is a clue from the book of James, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold the husbandman, which is the father, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. So that's talking about he's waiting for the harvest of souls, the lost to come in. He wants as many people to get here into the kingdom before he sends his son Jesus. The husbandman is the father and the father is waiting to get as much fruit off the vine as possible. Then the end shall come. Now, I'm starting to change my doctrine a little bit. And I suppose with eschatology, it's as good as doctrine to change as any because uh, as we get closer to it, the more of these verses, they'll come into more focus. But some, some eschatologists believe that really there'll be more evangelistic work done during the tribulation than the church has ever done. And the basis for that is the tribulation saints that are seen in heaven that came through the tribulation that the Bible said no man could number an innumerable company of every tribe and tongue and nation. Well, they, they didn't go in the rapture. They came through the tribulation. And so it's possible that what's going to happen during the tribulation will be an upped, uh, a jacked up, amped up version of what we've been doing. And it may be more souls are one. Maybe that's the great revival we've been lusting after or longing for for 25 or 30 years. Maybe we're laying the foundation for the tribulation saints. I, I don't know. I just throw that out there. This is eschatology. You know, this, this is things yet to come. And so we can't uh, say definitively on too many things. Some we can, others we just have to say, this is what it seems to say. So what is the after effect of the rapture? This is easy to conject. This is pretty fun too. Just as people went and looked for Enoch, but could not find him. And just as men went and looked, for the, looked three days for Elijah and could not find him. People will go and look for us and they will not find us. Uh, imagine your grandchildren coming and looking for you. Or maybe you going and looking for your grandkids. And, and even that's it's become kind of a joke in, in the church. You get to church and nobody's there and you, am I early or did the rapture happen and I got left behind? Folks are going to look for us and they'll not find us. The scarier thought is what it's going to do to the world's infrastructure and the world's stability. We can successfully and accurately conjecture pandemonium and chaos. Chaos will ensue. The loss of critical workers, police, government officials, surgeons, children, pilots, bankers, teachers, power plant workers. I caramba. The guy that sits in a bunker somewhere and every 10 hours he has to hit a button so the world doesn't melt down. He could be raptured because he got saved and now there's nobody down there to hit that button. <laughs> what about if both or all three pilots or four pilots on Air Force One are Christians and they're gone? Down goes Air Force One. 
or those guys that control satellites. Maybe the satellites start tumbling out of orbit. It's going to be pandemonium. But the thing is, you can see this is going to set it up for the world to have to say, what has happened? We are, all of our government officials are gone or 40% of our government officials are gone. We need a world order. You can see how the rapture could play into this one world order and one guy come along and say, I have an idea. Pick me. Ooh, I've been working on this and so-and-so, he's a brilliant mathematician and theologian and, and, and uh, philosopher, economist. He's been working on theories or whatever and he just works his way right up through the ranks and that becomes the Antichrist. Perhaps the ensuing chaos will cause the world to unanimously, unanimously agree to a one world government. What greater incentive could there be to implementing a one world government than common global pandemonium? I think as we get closer to this, we'll see it more accurately. And of course, we know the world is being prepared and we're being desensitized to a one world government. It's in the news almost every day now. Ten years ago, it seemed far-fetched, but now it's a common thing. The EU is going towards a one world thing and they're starting to do this everywhere. We're, we're getting desensitized and open to the thought, you know, that's not such a bad idea. You know, that, that's not such, we, it's all right if we lose our, uh, our individuality. It's all right as long as somebody takes care of us, which is what our country's trying to do. We're trying to be, they're trying to desensitize us. Our, as one man called it, our liberal overlords are trying to desensitize us saying, we can take better care of you than you can. You don't know how to do it. Let us help you. Well, who's going to help you? You need more help than I do. I at least have a balanced budget. <laughs> at least I can provide for my own and I don't have to borrow from China. And so you can see all this is being set up. Now, I don't know how much time we have. Everybody I talk to, they're just on the edge of their seat. But as Dr. Barclay has pointed out, every generation since the days of Peter have believed they were the generation. And it could be we're the generation or it could be our children are the generation. We don't know, and I don't think we're going to know uh, until it starts to really amp up to the season, perhaps. But, like I said, if we knew, we might just quit church, shut the doors for the next 20 years, and then on the 21st year, let's come back, open up church, and act like we've been busy all along. By then, we'll have so many demons. Our heart will be so callous. We'll be such fornicating fools. We won't want to go. So we walk this thing out by faith. One of our next lessons will be the signs of the times. We'll be able to see, because one of the things Jesus said is, when you see these signs begin, look up. And every sign that we're going to cover in the next lesson is already in full effect. And so we ought to be looking up. So I appreciate you guys coming out. We're a little bit over. Hopefully you learned something. If you have any questions, be writing them down. Email them to me. Put them in the offering, and uh, we'll, we'll try to answer them. Thanks.